I'll invite the rest of you to stand as we turn our attention now to God's word in Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Mark records this for us of the life of Jesus. He says, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we are grateful for the gathered body of Christ here at Nanzoon River Baptist Church. Thank you, God, for the encouragement that we can be to one another, for the fellowship of the saints that we have together, for our opportunity to worship you and to pray and to celebrate what you are doing through the ministries of our church and now collectively to turn our attention to your word. We pray, God, that you would encourage us by it, that you would instruct us through it, that you would correct our hearts. Convince us, God, deep down in our soul of that which we say so often with our mouth, and that is that salvation is for all. Help us to see this through these interactions that your son had during his earthly ministry, we pray, and it's in his name we ask all these things. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not going to hide the fact that today's sermon is based on one of the most difficult passages in the Gospel of Mark, maybe the most difficult, and here is why. At its face value, at least in the first of these two accounts, we're going to consider both today, but in the first of the two accounts, on face value, Jesus calls the Syrophoenician woman a dog, and we have to deal with that. <laughs> we have to recognize that if, if we just understand it as it is, as it is written, th this could be kind of challenging for us. And so when we get to difficult passages like this, 
I always ask that you do something. I hope you would do this every week, but I'm going to make this plea this morning. Please stick with me all the way to the end. Uh, I'm going to, as most often my sermons do, are going to progress through a series of ideas leading us to somewhere. And if you somehow leave off in the midst of it, you may leave confused a little bit about what's happening in this interaction. There have been those who have sought to use this passage as some type of justification, either for their own racism, which has happened historically, or to accuse Jesus himself of being sinful and being guilty of the sin of racism. Can I just tell you, neither of those is true of this text. This text should not be used to justify in any way hatred in our hearts of any other ethnicity. And this text should certainly not be used to accuse Jesus of harboring hatred in his heart against this Syrophoenician woman. When we see what Mark is telling us here about this event in the life of Jesus, really these two events that we take and juxtapose against what we considered last week, we see crumbs of glory, a beautiful picture that is painted for us. The main idea of today's sermon is that God's plan of redemption extends to all ethnic groups. This passage is not intended to insult one ethnic group or to place one above another. It is intended to show us that God has always intended to save the nations. God's plan of redemption extends to all ethnic groups. This is our main point today. And it's what we really need to see as we approach this text, these interactions, these two interactions that Jesus has outside of Galilee. First, there's two main, there's two points of the sermon. First, Jesus expands the gospel reach beyond ethnic Israel. Look at verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So Jesus has, in the gospel of Mark, ended his Galilean ministry. This place where Jesus has always lived, the place where Jesus has done the bulk of his ministry, and as we saw at the beginning of chapter 7 last week, kind of the, the culmination of his conflict with the Pharisees, who were the religious ruling elite of that day, uh, has now kind of come to a head. Jesus has had that conflict. It seems as if those people are going to continue to seek to um, destroy him, to destroy his ministry, to silence him. And so Jesus now leaves Galilee. We kind of get the sense in verse 24 that Jesus is a little bit on vacation. He entered a house and didn't want anybody to know it. So it, it could be argued that Jesus has at least gone into cover outside of Galilee. Tyre and Sidon are north of Galilee. They are outside of Israel altogether. He is in a completely Gentile-controlled area. But we're told that he is unable to hide himself. And in verse 25, immediately, any word spreads that Jesus has come to this Gentile area and a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. So let's stop for a minute and think about what Mark is telling us in verse 26 
about who this woman is. He says, he gives us three things about her. First, she is clearly a woman. Second, she is a Gentile, meaning she is not a Jew. Anyone who was not a Jew was considered a Gentile. She would have uh, been uh, Greek in culture. But more specifically, she is a Syrophoenician by birth meaning that her ethnicity is that of a Syrophoenician. Now, that word may be a little foreign to you. This means that she was from the area, uh, present day, known as Lebanon. She is Syrian and Phoenician by birth. Now, what we need to understand is what Mark reveals to us here is this cascading effect of points that should be against this woman. First, she was a woman. And in Jewish culture, women had no access to approach a rabbi. They were not allowed to approach teachers of Judaism and ask questions. That's strike one. Strike two was that she was a Gentile. As we saw last week, Gentiles were intended to be considered unclean for, a, for someone of the law, of the Pharisees' version of the law, to touch a Gentile was to make them unclean. They would then need to go into a ritual bath and to cleanse themselves so that they could be considered clean again. That's strike two. Strike three, though, was that she was a Syrophoenician. The Syrophoenicians in Jesus' day were seen as the greatest enemy of Israel. In years past, the Syrophoenicians, those people who lived in present-day Lebanon and Tyre and Sidon, had joined not only once or twice, but throughout the centuries against Israel, teaming up with their enemies. They teamed alongside of the Egyptians. They teamed alongside of the Greeks. They teamed alongside of the other Canaanite pagan nations that surrounded Israel to seek to wipe the nation off the map. They were, particularly of those in northern Israel, in the area of Galilee, seen as the greatest enemies of Israel. Strike three. I believe that Mark includes this story here for us immediately following what happens in the first part of Mark 7 as a juxtaposition that we are supposed to compare and contrast those who have come to Jesus with accusations and trick questions, who were Jewish men, Pharisees, scribes, keepers of the law, and this woman, Gentile, Syrophoenician, who instead of coming with accusations and trick questions, comes begging. The second part of verse 26 says, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Do you see the difference? If you were here last week, we looked at the legalism of the Pharisees and of the scribes and how legalism always leads away from the true gospel. It always adds burdens to people. And this is what the Pharisees were attempting to do to the followers of Jesus. They wanted to add these additional burdens and they wanted to trick Jesus into saying something that he shouldn't have said. They were looking to be able to accuse Jesus of some type of blasphemy. They wanted to rid Israel of the Messiah. And this woman, 
Gentile, Syrophoenician, comes with the complete opposite mindset. She comes begging. She approaches Jesus on her knees, desperate that he cast the demon out of his out of her daughter while the Jewish Pharisees at the beginning of chapter 7 come in their pride she comes in her humility and then Jesus responds in a way that on the surface seems cruel if we don't actually seek to understand what it is Jesus is trying to say look at verse 27 and he said to her let the children be fed first For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Now, there are two options that we can take as we view the response of Jesus. The first is that Jesus is insulting the woman by calling her a dog. And if you take that to be what Jesus is doing, then either Jesus is affirming racism. He is affirming ethnic divide. He is affirming that some people by birth are better than others. Or Jesus is embracing that very mentality and therefore sinning. This cannot be true. This cannot be the way that we read this text. And actually, it's not what Jesus is doing at all. The second option is that Jesus is telling a brief parable in a test of the woman's faith. You say, well, why do you take it as such? Well, there's a couple of hints here in what Jesus says to this woman that helps us to understand what he's saying. First, he's appealing to the idea of children representing Israel. And yes, in this text, in in this Uh, response of Jesus to this woman, children does represent Israel and that they are to be fed first. And then he says, for it is not right to take the children, that is Israel's bread, and throw it to the dogs. There were two words for dog in the Greek. Mark records one, and the one that he records gives us the biggest idea of what Jesus is saying here. There was a word for dog that would have been used in Roman culture, particularly in, um, particularly in Israel during that time, as an insult. It appears elsewhere in Scripture. This would have been the kind of dog that would have lived on the streets. These would have kind of been the kind of dogs that scrounge for their food. They would have been seen as dirty and unclean, often unkind. These were mangy, mongrel street animals. But that is not the word that Jesus uses here in verse 27. The word that Jesus uses in verse 27 was a different Greek word. It is a word that means house dog. You could even translate it as a puppy. This is the word that is intended here. That this is not an insult. This is a word picture. The image is that of a small house dog, a pet, that is sitting underneath the table waiting for scraps to fall off the table. Our dog that we had in our family when uh, our oldest son was born was a perfect picture of this. Um, Our dog, 
Christy and I had a dog that existed before our children came into our lives, uh, and she didn't like our oldest very much when he was born at all, except if he was in his high chair. That dog loved Brody when he was in his high chair. Why? Because inevitably crumbs would fall from the high chair, would fall to the floor, and this very much prized dog, particularly from my wife, this very much prized house dog, pet, was then able to eat. And Jesus is telling a brief, this brief parable in order to see how this woman is going to respond. So in this parable, the children, Israel, do eat first, but not exclusively. And if we don't take dog as an insult, if we simply take it as a word picture, then Jesus is actually expanding, not contracting the gospel message. This is affirmed elsewhere in Scripture early in his argument about the necessity of salvation, that all come to faith in Jesus to be saved, the apostle Paul makes this argument in Romans chapter one. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it is of this woman that Paul is writing and saying, yes, the gospel came to the Jew first, but it also came to the Greek. We shouldn't assume that that is putting some type of hierarchy into the gospel. The two best words in that phrase is and also. The gospel and also came to the Gentiles. It fell from the table to the floor as crumbs of glory so that all may eat. And let's see how the woman responds. Notice, she does not respond in anger. In no way does this woman receive this as any type of insult. She agrees with Jesus and even expands upon what Jesus is saying to demonstrate her faith. Look at verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord. She says, you're right. You're giving a picture that is true. Children eat at the table, pets sit under the table, and what falls from the table, the pets eat on the floor. And she says, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. I find it interesting that she, Mark records her saying a different word than Jesus did for children. Jesus used a very specific word for children that was talking about heirs. Sometimes it's even used to only talk about the immediate heir, the firstborn son. She uses a Greek word. Mark records a Greek word for what she says that expands upon the, the expands to the household, not only to additional children, but maybe even other prized servants. So this woman recognizes that under the table, are those who long to be a part of the family and are able to eat the same food as the crumbs fall to the floor. And look what Jesus says to her in verse 29. For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now, what is it about this statement that Jesus says, for this statement, you may go your way. What is it in this statement? This woman is affirming 
that the gospel is not only for, or that salvation is not only for Israel, but that salvation is for everyone. She is affirming the truth of the parable. That all can eat the crumbs of glory. That it is not only for one specific people group, but it is for the ethnic peoples of the world. Jesus has a similar discussion in John chapter 4 with a woman at a well. He's in a different area of Israel. People that lived within the nation of Israel but were certainly considered to be enemies of Israel. This is kind of the middle part of the nation where Galilee is in the north and Judea is in the south. There was an area in the middle known as Samaria and this was a do not go zone when Israelites would travel from Galilee to to Jerusalem in Judea, they would actually cross the Jordan River and go down the Jordanian side of, uh, the, uh, of the river so that they would not have to go through Samaria, but not Jesus. Jesus goes to Samaria on purpose, and in the middle of the day, goes to a well where a woman is drawing water, and she was drawing water in the middle of the day because she was a pariah in her society. She was not able to go and draw with the other women. And Jesus interacts with this woman, and he, he says to her, go get your husband, knowing that she had already had five husbands and was now living with a man who was not her husband. And they converse back and forth about Israelite worship and Samaritan worship, and the main difference between the worship of these two was location. Israelites worshipped in Jerusalem, Samaritans worshipped on a mountain in Samaria. And there was great debate over which of those mountains was the true mountain of worship. And Jesus tells this woman that a day is coming where you won't go to a mountain. It won't matter where you worship. That it's not the mountain in Samaria or the mountain in Judea, that it, it won't matter. Either mountain won't matter. And he says this in John 4, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Notice Jesus doesn't say salvation is for the Jews, even though it is for the Jews. It is from the Jews. It is from the Jewish religion, embraced by those in Jesus's day, believing that the Messiah would come many of whom, most of whom missed it, but some of whom didn't. It was from that faith that the gospel would spread to the world because salvation is from. There would be an expansion of the gospel beyond Israel. It would flow out of that land around the world. And it is that expansion of the gospel that the next account in Mark 7, the last account in Mark 7, confirms for us that those beyond ethnic Israel are able to see the glory of the Lord. Look at verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus north is now traveling south and is also going to go east to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now, the Decapolis, again, Gentile cities. We've seen the Decapolis once with the demoniac man who went and preached the gospel after being healed by Jesus in the region of the Decapolis. Jesus is now going to go back into that region, a place where some Jewish people live, but primarily controlled by Gentiles. And they brought him a man, verse 32, who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay 
his hand on him. Do, so we see again this, this juxtaposition from the religious legalists at the beginning of chapter 7 who come to Jesus in their pride and accusation to now the second time Gentiles coming to Jesus, second time just in two stories, begging You see the difference? There's humility, there's begging. They know Jesus is the only hope. Verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now, there's a couple of things happening here that Jesus is doing on the, in the Golan Heights, the Jordanian side of the Sea of Galilee, here amongst these Gentiles that stand out to us, kind of as different and unique. And I'll be honest with you, I don't really have an answer for why Jesus does some of the things that he does. For instance, they bring this man begging to him, and we see a really hands-on Jesus here. In the previous account, Jesus never even sees the girl He only interacts with the mother. But here, this man who is deaf and unable to speak is brought before Jesus, and Jesus really takes a hand-on approach here. We're told in verse 33 that he puts his fingers in his ears. I can't tell you why Jesus put his fingers in his ears. It gets stranger from there. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. I'm not really sure why in the world Jesus thought he'd needed to spit and grab this guy's tongue, but it's what he did. Jesus is drawing attention at least, at the very least, Jesus is drawing attention to the ailment that this guy faces. And if we go back again to earlier in chapter 7, he's making himself unclean to do it. Now, not unclean according to the actual law, unclean according to the oral tradition of the scribes and Pharisees which is likely why Mark is telling us that Jesus did this. Now, again, why he puts his fingers in his ear and grabs his tongue. He could have just laid his hand on him, and that would have been enough. But anyway, this is what Jesus does. He's getting really hands-on with this. And then Mark records for us a, an Aramaic word. That this will happen a few times in the Gospel of Mark, Ephatha. And then he translates it for his Roman readers, and thankfully for us, be open, is what Jesus says. And what happens? Immediately, his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he was able to speak. So here, the second encounter that Jesus has with Gentiles in Mark 7, compared back to his encounter with those with, with, with the, the, the ruling elite, these arrogant people who come to Jesus to try to ta- trap him. A second now Gentile comes begging, a group really comes begging Jesus, and Jesus touches him and heals him. And then look at verse 36 and 37. He charges them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. There was no keeping this quiet. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, we could, we could leave this here and just say, this is great, right? Jesus is, is demonstrating for us both with the Syrophoenician woman and with the deaf and mute Gentile that the gospel is spreading to all. But there's some depth here that's worth mining for just a moment. Because Mark uses some words, 
I believe, that are intended to trigger our minds to something that had been prophesied long ago, hundreds of years before we were told that this would happen. Hundreds of years before, we were told that the gospel would spread in this way, that salvation would spread beyond the borders of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 34 and 35, we get a starkly contrasted picture. In Isaiah 34, the Lord pronounces judgment against the nations of the world. All the nations of the world. Often judgment is pronounced in the Old Testament prophets against specific nations. But in Isaiah 34, it is all the nations of the world. All the, and when I say nations, here's what you need to hear. All of the people groups of the world. That, that everybody has wandered away from what God has intended for them. And that God is going to pronounce judgment upon them. And he does in Isaiah 34. Isaiah 35, though, takes this stark contrast, this different turn, and actually pronounces salvation for all of the nations of the world, that some will be ransomed, that some will be, and this is why I think Mark records the Aramaic word of Jesus and then translates it for us, that some will be opened. And what I want to do is I want to read all of Isaiah 35 for us. I want you to just hear how God's plan to expand salvation to the world is unfolded for us hundreds of years before it actually happens. The prophet writes, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly. And rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. And make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart. Be strong. Fear not. Behold your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Listen to verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool in the thirsty ground spring of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sight shall flee away. Who is this speaking of? 
the ransom of the Lord that shall come to Zion. Here, Zion represents the kingdom of God. It is the ransom of the Lord from all the peoples of the world who shall have their eyes opened, their ears unstopped, their tongues freed to sing of the joy of God because salvation has come to the people of the world through Jesus. So what? We proclaim the gospel indiscriminately so that all people, peoples, might hear and be saved. We proclaim the gospel indiscriminately, meaning we go specifically with the gospel to all peoples, meaning it does not matter what they look like. It does not matter what their background is. It does not matter what their immigration status is. It does not matter on what side of which war they fought. It does not matter who their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents are. It doesn't matter what color their passport is. It doesn't matter what language they speak. We go with the gospel indiscriminately because God desires to save from amongst all of the peoples of the world. God desires for North Koreans to be saved. God desires for Russians to be saved. God desires for Iranians to be saved. God desires for people in the continents of Africa and Asia and Europe and Australia and North and South America to be saved. God desires liberals and Democrats and conservatives and Republicans. God desires people who look like you and talk like you and for people who don't look anything like you and don't talk anything like you to be a part of his eternal kingdom. So we proclaim the gospel indiscriminately because that's what salvation requires of us. That we go with the gospel to all peoples so that they might hear and be saved. And this is what God has been doing from the beginning. And the apostle Paul gives us another word picture. Jesus uses this picture of the table and crumbs falling on the ground The Apostle Paul in Romans 11 uses the picture of a tree where a foreign branch is going to be grafted into it. Listen to what Paul writes. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now realize that's a lot. It's a lot of grafting and natural and unnatural and wild. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying from the beginning, God has been growing this tree of redemption. And for a very long time, it had a very ethnic flair to it. While there were people that weren't of ethnic Israel who in the Old Testament were saved, in the main, the tree had one root, had one base. 
but through Jesus. People from all ethnicities, from all people groups, from all of the nations of the world, as these wild olive shoots are being grafted into that kingdom, to that one people. And for those many in this room who are Gentiles, that is us. We are the wild olive shoots who have been grafted in. That is who the Gentiles are. But this has always been God's plan. And this will always be God's plan. There aren't two ways to be saved. Looking back in Mark 7, as if the law could somehow save, it couldn't. There is one plan of redemption, faith in Jesus, either in the Old Testament looking forward to the promised Messiah or now on the other side of the life and ministry of Jesus looking back on his redeeming work for us. But while we're talking about ethnicities, let me just briefly mention the other argument that Paul is making here. Because as Christianity has continued to spread amongst Gentile nations, it has caused some, not all, but some, to have a negative view of ethnic Israel. Now, I am not one, I'm not going to get into this, but I, I am not one that, that thinks that somehow ethnic Israel has this grand plan, that, well, let me say that, that the nation of Israel that exists in the Middle East now is part of some grand plan that God is performing in our day. You may think that, and that's fine. We can disagree. But I do believe with my whole heart that God is not done with that people group. I do believe in my whole heart what Paul is writing here is true, that many of them will be grafted back in to their own olive tree. And so we shouldn't think of Christianity as being a Gentile religion. Christianity is a religion for all the peoples in the world, Jew and Gentile. That God is doing something in his redemptive plan that makes salvation available regardless of where you're from, regardless of what language you speak. He is building his kingdom and his kingdom will be made up of Jews and all manner of Gentiles together as one people. Say, how can we make that argument? Well, let's go to Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, seeking to correct legalism. Remember, we went to Galatians a lot last week looking at the legalistic argument of the Pharisees. Seeking to correct legalism that has found its way into the church at Galatia. Paul writes this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham was justified not by his works, by his faith. And all who have faith in Jesus are children of Abraham. Here's the good news for you today. When you believe the gospel, you go from being a pet, eating crumbs on the floor, to being given a seat at the table of almighty God as a child and heir of the king. Crumbs of glory. So do I mind being a Gentile? No. 
Is it wrong for someone to be glad that God created them a part of ethnic Israel or ethnic of anything? No, it's fine. There's nothing wrong about talking about ethnicity. That's not a bad word. It actually shows us what God is doing, that God is taking people from all of these varied backgrounds and all of these different strands and nations and lineages, and he is bringing them all to his table. So what do we do? We proclaim the gospel to all of these people so that they might hear this good news and be saved by faith in Jesus alone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in Jesus, we are given a seat at your table that we didn't earn it by our own actions, we didn't do anything on our own that gained that seat, but that you graciously gave it to us. We pray, God, that you would help us when our minds and our flesh desire for us to discriminate for whatever reason, to think someone is not worthy of hearing and believing the gospel. God, would you make us a church, continue to make us into a church that indiscriminately proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ so that all might hear it and be saved. Thank you, God, for the seat that you have given us as children and heirs of the King. I pray, God, for the one here who has rejected this message in their heart until today and now they hear it, would they believe and be saved, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.